So now I'm really excited to introduce you to one of our local opioid heroes, Dr. Stephen Dudley. Uh, Dr. Dudley's a board certified clinical toxicologist, and he's also the director of the Arizona Poison and Information Drug Information Center. Uh, shortly after graduating from U of A College of Pharmacy, he completed a toxicology fellowship uh, at the Arizona Poison and Drug Information Center. Uh, in addition to his clinical and director duties, uh, Dr. Dudley is a clinical toxicology fellowship director, as well as a preceptor and course instructor for pharmacy and medical students and residents. So his work also includes overseeing Arizona opioid assistance and referral line. Today, you know, we're going to talk about double trouble benzoids. Benzoids and opioids harm reduction with naloxone. So basically, we're just going to compare the risk of benzo and opioid overdose and their co-involvement, characterize the approaches of reducing the opioids and benzos co-prescribing, and identify some best practices for discharge naloxone. All right, so I, I'm pretty sure we've all seen or heard in some way this statement uh, in some form or manner, but this is from the CDC guideline for prescribing opioids for chronic pain uh, back in 2016. And basically, this recommendation came out that clinicians should avoid prescribing opioid pain medication and benzodiazepines concurrently whenever possible. Um, and I think two of the big points I want to talk about today is one, whenever possible, you know, clearly there are some uh, specific times and needs where you may need to co-prescribe those you know, pallets of care, things like that. But uh, whenever possible, we definitely want to try to avoid that. And the second part of this is, you know, why? And, and I think we all know now because of the risk of overdose and death, specifically when you combine these two medications. So as a poison center person, I want to give some poison center statistics. And so this is from our, uh, all the poison centers, all 55 of us uh, from uh, last year, 2021, the data for uh, exposures are called to us. And so if you look here nationally, we, the poison centers received uh, almost 18,000 cases of a benzo exposure reported to us. And uh, this is a single substance. So what that means is that uh, these were the calls we had where it was just the benzo involved, nothing else, uh, at least nothing else that was reported or known to us. And so of those nearly 18,000 cases, we had eight deaths. So we're about a, a rate of a little under 0.05%. And when you look at just opioid exposure, we had a little over 26,000 of those. Again, just opioid, single substance, and not combined with any other category or class of medication that was known to us. Uh, 439 deaths, uh, you know, a little over one and a half percent of the time, uh, those in and in fatalities. And then when you look at the combination of benzos plus opioids exposures to us together, about 22,000 cases, 469 deaths, and that rate increased to 2.09%. Now, the poison center data is a little skewed. You know, again, we get these exposure calls. These can be uh, accidental ingestions. They could be self-harm attempts. So definitely take it with a grain of salt. But, you know, we're absolutely seeing this in our world. And a big part of what we're also seeing is not just the prescription of uh, opioids, but also illicit uh, and streets uh, opioids who are being uh, contaminated with fentanyl and fentanyl analogs, et cetera. And so, you know, definitely something to keep in mind there. But looking at data from elsewhere, so this is one uh, study done from the VA looking at the benzodiazepine prescribing patterns and deaths um, in the VA uh, population with opioids. This was a systematic uh, uh, retrospective review looking at over uh, 420,000 random, randomly sampled uh, patient records that had an opioid uh, prescribed. And then of that 420,000 uh, reviews, we had 
a little over 112,000 who were co-prescribed benzos. And so they specifically looked at that population and the subset of the 2,400 patients who unfortunately uh, died from an overdose. But again, the take-home point that they found uh, without, without doubt was increasing the frequency, increasing the amount of opioids and benzos taken together led to a higher risk of, of death from drug overdose. All right, so you know we talk about, and I'm sure everyone's here heard probably ad nauseum about the risks that exist here, but what can we do about it? Uh, and so one of some things we can make of the interventions is clinicians checking the prescription drug monitoring program uh, for concurrent control medications prescribed by other clinicians. That's a big, uh, and I want to say easy one, uh, you know, with with a uh, tongue in cheek there because you know sometimes there are barriers in implementing that into, uh, you know, your EHR or having you know consistent access or you know a, a getting people. Uh, nurses, technicians, et cetera, as uh, authorized viewers for, for physicians to look at that. I know there can be some barriers there, but um, that is a pretty uh, relatively low-hanging fruit to try to reduce the, the incidence of that's happening. But a big part of it is going to be taking the patient history and being cautious about OTC opioids. And what I mean by OTC opioids are the two big ones we're seeing, especially in the poison center world, are Kratom or Kratom, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Uh, and this one is a plant that is um, from, from originally from Southeast Asia. It's the Metragenes uh, speciosa plant. And what's interesting is that in low doses, it's actually more of a stimulant, kind of like caffeine. And that's what it's used for in the fields uh, for, you know, uh, field laborers, things like that. But in high doses, it does act on the myopia receptor, and it, it through and through is an opioid. Uh, the the big thing here in Arizona is that, you know, how are we going to regulate this? And this is a big talk for years and, you know, where we're going to make it illegal, make it a controlled substance. And we sort of, you know, kick the can down the road. And right now it's, you can get it online. You can get it. We've seen it in vending machines around Tucson. So it is definitely accessible to patients and it's becoming known as an opioid uh, sort of a substitute for for patients who who may need it for any purpose. And so you can see here's the CDC report from the MMWR about the increase in drug overdose deaths. The other one we're, we're seeing here as well is the uh, generic uh, loperamide, uh, it's anti-diarrheal. Uh, and this one we've seen as well, unfortunately, the poison center road. And the normal doses you get over the counter, it has no opioid effect in the brain whatsoever. Uh, but in high doses, you're talking hundreds of, of capsules a day, you can actually penetrate the blood-brain barrier. And again, this is another sort of OTC opioid. And unfortunately, it's, it's been linked to overdose deaths, as well as torsades, as another one of the unfortunate adverse effects. Okay, so what else can we do, right? We know this is the big issue. What can we do to actually do something about it? Uh, consider non-pharmacologic and non-opioid pharmacologic treatments. Uh, and so, you know, what, does that, what does that mean? You know, there have been studies looking at if we see opioids and we know that they're not working there or we want to reduce the risk, what else can we do? So cognitive behavioral therapy has been a big one. that has been gaining a lot of steam in the last few years. Exercise therapy and biopsychosocial rehabilitation. Uh, the biopsychosocial model is really looking at, you know, three different things. So I think as clinicians, everyone's pretty familiar with the uh, the physical model, right? The biopathway, uh, but also looking at the psychological impact uh, and social impact of chronic pain and how to address those different things to sort of cultivate this better 
patient-centric patient care model to improve outcomes. And there have been some, some evidence that that does have pretty modest um, increases or improvements in chronic pain. So as part of your, your pharmacologic therapy, this can be a pretty important tool uh, to improve chronic pain without having to rely uh, heavily on opioids and especially opioids and benzos. And then your non-opioid therapies, your acetaminophens, NSAIDs, your SNRIs, your serotonin, norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, uh, your tricyclics, uh, again, trying to target the, the chronic pain, the neuropathic pain, uh, you know, from a different non-opioid-based uh, mechanism. Again, evidence showing that there is, you know, modest uh, improvement as well as part of a treatment plan uh, can definitely lead to better outcomes and improve quality of life. Okay, and then the last thing, you know, consider involving pharmacists and pain specialists as part of the management team and opioids are co-prescribed with other central nervous system depressants. And so it's kind of a two-fold argument here. Uh, one, you know, pain specialists, I say that because obviously it's nice to have somebody who specializes in that area for these, for these patients as as someone who runs the ore line, uh, being here in Tucson and covering the state, especially in these rural areas, that is way easier said than done. I think in 2016, you know, in a good effort, you know, there was all these new updated guidelines that came from Arizona that says, yeah, you know, just have a pain specialist and you know, recruit them on, consult them, easy peasy. Uh, and then you have to try to find one. And there were essentially none, right? So definitely easier said than done for that matter. But involving pharmacists can definitely be an easier way to, to get an extra set of eyes um, on, on these prescriptions and these prescribing patterns and to make interventions. All right, so the first one, so there's some, some evidence that's out there. So uh, there are medication therapy management programs that offer pharmacist-delivered, uh, uh, you know, director-provider interventions. And so this one was just kind of looking at a uh, retrospective review, uh, looking at about 58,000 subjects, and they found that, you know, when there was a pharmacist involved in trying to make an alert or a change to a uh, benzo and opioid co-prescription, that the uh, the change was actually approved roughly like 66% of the time, uh, and that led to some odd of, uh, you know, 22, 23,000 prescriptions being changed, um, de-combining uh, the, the, the two uh, prescriptions there. So definitely a good intervention. From a VA standpoint, again, uh, this one's looking at academic detailing program done by pharmacists to uh, look at and affect the co-prescribing trends in the, the, the VA system. And they found that once academic programming was done uh, by pharmacists, uh, the, the rate of co-prescribing of benzos and opioids dramatically uh, decreased and they had about a, a third of reduction uh, after the first month of, of the interventions uh, of the two there. So again, another sort of uh, example of how you can have a multidisciplinary approach to to help reach the goals there um, you know for all the things that we're talking about with the uh, the strain on the healthcare system and you know physician time with patient and all these metrics that we have to hit it, it is nice to have a, a separate set of uh, eyes and a backup there to kind of help um, reach our goals so to speak and then uh, finally, just another example, another study done about implement, implementing a pharmacy console service uh, to reduce the uh, co-prescribing opioids and benzos. And again, same thing after the implementation, you know, the co-prescription rates uh, drop dramatically. Uh, okay, so then a big part just to kind of wrap up the quick in our session here is naloxone and discharge. So I think we all know naloxone saves lives. You know, it's not the end all be all. We definitely need to approach the problem from a prevention standpoint uh, and education standpoint to prevent an overdose. But should this happen, naloxone is definitely one of the first tools we want to make sure we have, um, you know, with the patient to prevent a death. And so naloxone should be offered to patients at an increased risk for overdose. And what does that mean, right? So if they had a history of overdose in the past, Past, 
of any substance. That would be a reason for them to have naloxone there. History of a substance use disorder, if they're co-prescribed benzos and opioids, again, we know by now the uh, the increased, increased risk of overdose death uh, there. Uh, reduced tolerance or return to a high dose. This is a big one that we see in the poison center world. You may have seen in you know, your own experiences, but patients who are incarcerated, who have been using opioids, in any manner, illicitly or through prescription, uh, you know, and they they don't have access to that. They lose that tolerance over time, and then they are returned to their home dose, and effectively, it's an overdose because they've lost the tolerance. It becomes a whopping dose for them. Um, and really, anyone who's being prescribed more than fifty morphine milligram equivalents a day, um, you do see some some variation. This number fifty or is it ninety? Again, I think it's definitely better to to you know be safe than sorry. And, and I think that the the important point here is we want to reduce those barriers, right? Um, high risk patients should leave with naloxone in hand. You know, in Arizona, we have the standing order, so any patient can go to a pharmacy and. Get get naloxone, but you want to reduce that barrier. You want to reduce the chance they get there and you know, pharmacy's out of stock or they don't go to the pharmacy whatsoever, you know, at all. Um, anything that we can do to make sure they leave with naloxone, it's directly going to impact their chances of survival should an overdose um, occur. And a big thing too is addressing the stigma. You know, this is a thing we work with a lot of people who use drugs. I know this is not necessarily the focus of this talk, but it does spill over with patients who are using opioids again for for any reason, there is that stigma that we have in society about oh well they're they're a drug user and what does that mean and so um, you know there's a lot of evidence um, that you know their the perception is that they feel less um, less uh, less appreciated that they feel like they're they're you know not really respected as your your typical patient would be and so because of that they don't get the same sort of opportunities same education things like that and so we want to make sure that you know we're not blowing these patients off um, we're addressing provider stigma patient stigma and making sure the patient care comes first um, and a big part of that too is making sure that the patients feel comfortable taking the naloxone and having that conversation with people they live with of close ones nearby about how to use naloxone how to recognize the signs of the opioid overdose because if they suffer from an overdose, they're not going to be able to, to administer naloxone to themselves more often than not. And so it's going to be somebody else with them. And we know that uh, people who are with these people who live with them at home um, are the best chance for these patients surviving an overdose, uh, far greater than EMS getting there because, again, there's that time delay there. So uh, addressing stigma goes a long way into improving outcomes, and that's really what it's all about. You know, what's the point of giving a life-saving drug if they never use it or tell them to use a life-saving drug if they never get it?